Welcome everybody to today's episode of the Jadava Show. I'm your host, Jacob Valier. Um, I was thinking about something this morning about how, you know, everyone talks about the summertime being the worst time of year when it comes to sports because it's nothing but baseball. You know, basketball's over, hockey's over, and football's in training camp, but there's really not a lot of free agency news or anything coming out of football in the summertime, and all you have is the middle of baseball season. Um, I would like to argue that right now is the worst time in sports. It's the middle of the NBA season, and nobody really cares quite yet as much as they will once the playoffs start. Same with the NHL. College basketball's sort of heating up. The last few weeks, college basketball has sort of been in the middle of its season, and we're just... We've been done with football for a few weeks, and nothing's really going on in football except for draft talk. Once the draft really picks up, I mean, right around now, the Combine is happening, and the Combine will start on uh, Thursday, uh, but the interview process for the Combine started yesterday, actually. But, like, the past few weeks, it's been nothing. It's been, we've got basketball, we've got hockey, but it's regular season basketball, and it's regular season hockey, and quite honestly, it's... It's it, it regular season NBA might be one of the most unwatchable things on all of television. I'm sorry, it's it's fun sometimes when the good teams are playing, but like when the Wizards play the New York Knicks, then obviously it's it's just really bad television. That no wonder uh, the NBA's had bad ratings for the last few years. Um, that and also the predictability of it. I mean, you sort of already know who the playoff teams are going to be. It's same with hockey. You already pretty much know who all the teams that are going to make the playoffs are because they've been the best teams all year. Uh, in college basketball, it's getting interesting. Like uh, Liberty, for instance, is they just clinched. They beat uh, North Florida last Thursday to clinch an opportunity to host the A-Sun tournament. And if they win that game, they're in the tournament. Stuff like that is fun. You know Baylor's going to be in the tournament. You know Kentucky. You know Duke. You know UVA you know, uh, San Diego State, all those teams are going to make it uh, to March Madness. So there's really no suspense. Um, so there's really, it's going to be hard to talk about. And I know I realized, I was like, of all the times that I could start my sports talk podcast, I started in February, which is like the slowest time of the year for sports. But here I am. Uh, I will uh, continue to find the topics that are relevant and uh go from there, but I'll also talk about other stuff. I put out uh, a question uh, type of thing on my Instagram story today for you guys to help me figure out what to talk about. Uh, I'm going to do a mailbag episode for tomorrow's show, uh, but for today we have a couple things to get into. You know, last night, uh, I'm a Young Life leader around in, here in Lynchburg, and after Young Life last night, we had a great time. After Young Life, I came home, and me and a couple of my roommates watched uh, a little bit of Revenge of the Sith, which is episode three of the Star Wars saga. Um, and it really, so I'm a big Star Wars nerd. I've never really been into Lord of the Rings or, you know, Narnia or really anything, like any super, like Marvel movies, superhero movies. Star Wars has always been it for me. I'm a comedy type of movie watcher. Uh, sometimes I like drama and sometimes I like, seeing like murder mysteries. I actually watched a murder mystery type of movie on Saturday, A Simple Favor, uh, starring uh, Blake Lively uh, and, uh, gosh, what's her name? Anna Kendrick uh, and the guy from Crazy Rich Asians who plays Nick Young, and I can't remember his name, um, but might come to me later. So I was watching uh, Revenge of the Sith last night, and I noticed a lot of things, and it really made me think, because Rise of Skywalker, Episode Nine, which is supposedly the last movie uh, in the Skywalker saga, came out uh, back in late December while we were all on Christmas break. I actually liked Rise of Skywalker a lot. I know a lot of people found problems with it. A lot of people found problems with Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. Um, if I'm being honest, I just did not love the sequel trilogy of Star Wars. It was what uh, this is what I liked. I liked some of the new characters, uh, like Kylo Ren uh, and Poe Dameron. I liked those two. And I liked the way they used Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. You know, I thought they did a good job using them. 
I thought it was totally necessary to kill off Han Solo in The Force Awakens, and I thought it was necessary the way they used Luke in The Last Jedi. Uh, they, it, you know, a lot of people, um, including my dad. My dad has a big problem with Episode Eight and the way they handled Luke, and my brother Michael, who you heard last episode, does too. And and just the way that they sort of made him out to be a crotchety old man who's unwilling to help. Uh, because he failed Kylo Ren sometime between episodes 6 and 7, and he went into hiding because of it, and now he doesn't want to use his powers and be a Jedi anymore. Uh, but I thought that really strengthened Luke's character, because uh, you know, he never really had to suffer much loss in the original trilogy. Yeah, his aunt and uncle died in episode 4, and he sort of had to learn the ways of being on his own, but he never really experienced true loss, because... Uh, there was great peace when his father, uh, who's Darth Vader, spoiler alert, um, in case you haven't seen the movie, um, his father, Darth Vader, dies, but he was very much at peace with it, and he didn't really even know Darth Vader was his father until towards the end of Darth Vader's life. Uh, so the first time you, you really see Luke in despair is when he's training his nephew to become a Jedi, and his Jedi rebels and destroys everything that Luke created, and Luke is in such despair that he goes into hiding from his own family and everybody and I think that was I thought that was really strong for his character and the way he died too it was good that he didn't die he wasn't killed uh he died peacefully on his own terms and he did it did so by helping the rebellion escape the first order uh I thought that was good for Luke's character I thought I thought the way they used Luke in episode eight was very very good and and I liked the way they used Han Solo, sort of in and out, sort of moving on from Han Solo quickly, killing him in Episode 7 at the hands of his own son. You know, I just thought that was a nice twist, you know, having Han Solo have his own son kill him. Um, so, like, I like that. I thought that was all really good. It was really good entertainment on the part of Disney. But what I didn't, and there's a lot I didn't like, and the characters I didn't like, I didn't like Finn. I thought he was sort of just there. Didn't really contribute much to the story. Uh, I didn't like Rose, but that, no one really liked Rose. I didn't like DJ, the, the guy in episode 8 who um, sort of this, I don't know, was he a gambler? He was in jail when Finn and Rose found him. Uh, and, I mean, he ended up not being helpful in any way. And uh, so I, I just didn't really see the point of DJ. He had such a small role in one movie, and his role was kind of empty. I didn't really th think Captain Phasma was that strong of a character. She was sort of just... I, I, I don't know. Because a lot of times she, it looked like she talked a big game and then just submitted to whatever Finn asked her to do. Like in Episode 7, she said, I'm not going to let down the ray shields. And then the next time you see them, she's letting down the ray shields at gunpoint. Uh, and then she takes forever to kill Finn and Rose in Episode 8, and then she doesn't, and then they end up killing her. I, she was just a very weak and poorly developed character, in my opinion. Uh, and last, I, I really was not a big fan of them bringing back the Emperor, uh, Darth Sidious, in Episode 9. Uh, I think it made uh, Darth Vader slash Anakin's sacrifice in Episode 6 completely superfluous uh, to <laughs> just act like he didn't really kill the Emperor. The Emperor actually has a clone of himself that he re Look, I didn't like it. I, I didn't like the fact that they brought him back. I think it was sort of the Star Wars way of admitting that they ran out of ideas, so they're rehashing the Emperor, because they know that'll put people in seats. Um, and, yeah, I, look, if you, if, if you look at the sequel trilogy to Star Wars for what it's worth, I think, and this is my opinion, it's kind of a pointless, hollow sequel trilogy. It's entertaining, for sure. Like, I went out and saw all three movies, and I've seen all three of them again after I saw them initially in the theater. And they just don't do much for me. Like, I still, when I think of Star Wars, I think of the first six episodes. I don't think of seven, eight, nine, because I feel like, you know, they're just, it's an, it's an add-on to what was already a, an incredible redemption story of Anakin Skywalker. And I feel like Disney... Felt like they could make a few more bucks because they know how much people love Star Wars. Uh, so they they went out and did that. I like the movies. And I, I dare to say that some of these movies were better than some of the prequels. Uh, but I look, I thought it was kind of pointless. I didn't see much of a point to it. And I thought there was a lot that they could have done 
that would have made it a bit of a more powerful storyline. Uh, and I'll get into that later. And it has nothing to do with even having three more movies. I think it has everything to do with what they could have done in the previous movies. Um, so if I had to rank, <clears throat> if I had to rank all nine episodes of Star Wars, uh, I would pro first of all, Empire Strikes Back, episode five, is my favorite movie. It's per it's there's no real beginning, there's no real ending because you leave off in episode five, you open up, and they're in Hoth, uh, they're trying to plan their next move against. Uh, the Empire, uh, and then throughout the movie, you start to see Princess Leia and Han Solo come together. You see Luke learn the ways of the Force through Yoda. At the end, you learn that Luke is Darth Vader's son. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, uh, when they're looking, when uh, Luke and Leia are looking off into space on that starship, you're just sort of left thinking, like, what's going to happen next? Like, it's it's literally the most perfect sequel in the history of cinema. It's it's flawless the way they did that. So episode five is my favorite movie. Episode six would be my second favorite Star Wars movie uh, because it's it's so thoroughly put together and the way it ends is so just perfect. Like it, there's really no better way to have finished the trilogy than to have a big celebration, to have Darth Vader redeem himself, to kill the Emperor. Uh, all of that was just a perfect way to end the trilogy uh, when you look at it chronologically. Um, so I, I, episode six is my second favorite. Uh, third favorite out of nine. Uh, number three, I'd put episode four, A New Hope. Uh, yeah, so yeah, all the, all the original trilogy movies are my top three favorite. Look, I think when you look at it chronologically, I look at Star Wars 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, not 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, like a lot of people do. I think when you look at it through the way I look at it, 1 through 6, uh, Episode 4 really is a lot more powerful than you thought. Because when you look at Darth Vader and how ruthless he can be, you also sort of in, your, in the back of your head picture just how painful his life has been and how he feels like everyone has betrayed him. And it really is, when you think about it like that, when you think about it through Darth Vader's lens and knowing everything that happens to Darth Vader, episode four and five really seem like different movies. Like, he's not being evil just for, oh my gosh, I'm evil. He's being evil because he really feels like everyone in his life has wronged him and now he feels like it's too late to be good again. Um, and plus, episode four is a classic. It's the original. It's probably, it's, so yeah, it's my third favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, fifth... I'm, or fourth, I'm going to go episode three, Revenge of the Sith. Uh, it's a great transition into the original trilogy because it really ties everything up in a neat bow. It's got Anakin turning to the dark side, Palpatine revealing that he's Darth Sidious. It has uh, the Jedi Purge, Obi-Wan and Yoda go into hiding, Luke and Leia are born, Padme dies, uh, Yoda, uh, Yoda faces off with Darth Sidious. The movie sort of had everything. Uh, and, you know, I was really pleased by it when I saw it as a kid. And now I appreciate it more than now that I'm older, and I get to sort of realize how crucial that is to the whole entire nine episodes. Episode three may actually, in terms of meaningfulness, <laughs> might have the most meaning out of all nine of those movies. Now, the reason it's not higher is for obvious reasons. You know, it's, you know, Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker is one of the worst performances uh, I've ever really seen. I mean, they could have casted Anakin way better uh, than they ended up. Um, and I think there were a lot of filler characters like Mace Windu and Count Dooku uh, that I really didn't think were very necessary. Um, so, <clears throat> that, so episode three is four. Number five, I'm going to go episode eight, The Last Jedi, coming in at number five. A lot of people hate episode eight for some reason. I think it's the best of the sequel uh, movies. Um, I think there's just so much going on, and it's so... What's the word? It's so untraditional of Star Wars, because everything in Star Wars, everybody, everything means something. Everybody that has the Force is related to each other. Everything has to have a certain meaning, and Episode Eight was really the only of the nine movies that went away from that, went untraditional, and I actually kind of liked it. It was different, it was edgy, um, 
I, I honestly am a sucker for the scene between Luke and Kylo Ren where uh, Kylo Ren thinks he's facing Luke, but Luke is not really there. He's meditating and force broadcasting himself onto that planet. Uh, <laughs> look, that's, to, in my opinion, that stuff is really awesome. Um, and I loved Episode 8. They're all, look, the reason Episode 8's not higher is because there are a ton, there's a ton of filler in that movie. All of the Finn and Rose and DJ scenes were <laughs> hard to watch. Uh, Princess Leia and Poe Dameron scenes were kind of like, for some reason they didn't tell Poe anything, and and uh, pr you know Princess Leia like resurrecting from the dead after she uh, was blasted out of that spaceship. Look, that stuff is the reason that, that holds Episode Eight lower on the list. Um, but all of the Ray and Luke scenes were great. Luke and Kylo Ren at the end was awesome. Um, yeah, I thought Episode Eight was the best of all of them. Uh, number six. I'm gonna go episode nine, Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I loved, the, I loved the movie. I loved all of them, um, but Rise of Skywalker. The reason it's not higher is because I, I feel like it was way too much fan service. That because they had Han Solo come back in the form of a memory. They had all the little voices of like Anakin, Obi Wan, Yoda, Mace Windu, Qui Gon. Uh, they. You know, you, you got to see Rey and Kylo Ren on the destroyed second Death Star. You know, I think, and you got to see the Emperor, who's dead. And the Death Star literally blew into a thousand pieces. And, you know, you've never heard the Force ghosts of half of those Jedi until this movie when Rey needs them. And plus, when Rey kills the Emperor, it really does feel like it... Like I said earlier, it makes Anakin's sacrifice in Episode Six completely superfluous. Because so I think there's way too much fanfare, fan service. There's way too much of because you even got Kylo Ren and Rey kissing each other, which the fans wanted for sure. Um, I don't think Kylo Ren should have died. Obviously, Princess Leia had to die because Carrie Fisher is dead in real life, and you just sort of knew they'd kill Princess Leia eventually. Um, but yeah. I enjoyed episode nine. A lot of fan service. A lot that I liked. A lot that I didn't really get. Han Solo. I don't think he should have. They should have been able to have Han Solo in the movie. Um, but yeah, the episode nine would come in at number six for me. Uh, number seven. I'm gonna go episode seven. The Force Awakens. Uh, look, I remember watching it, thinking it was really great. But over the last five years since it's come out, I've sort of realized that it's almost a complete ripoff from A New Hope, Episode 4. And I just feel like it was another instance of, you know, a theme in these three movies. It feels like Disney sort of ran out of ideas for Star Wars, so they just rehashed old ideas. And Episode 7 is really the most evident, because Episode 8, they sort of went away from it. Episode 9, a lot of fanfare, a lot of fan fiction. Episode 7 is like almost watching Episode 4 all over again. So I'd put episode seven at number seven. Uh, at number eight, I'm going to go episode two, Attack of the Clones. There's really only a couple cool scenes in this movie. Um, it's where, and they're all really have to do with uh, the battle on, gosh, what's that planet's name? The, the, whatever planet where they, it's like they're in a coliseum and all the Jedi against all the droids. That was really cool. Big nerdgasm scene for Every Star Wars nerd getting to watch a bunch of Jedi uh, fight at one time. Uh, I did not love the whole uh, Boba Fett as a little kid thing, or the, all the clones looking like Jango Fett. All of the Anakin and Padme romance I could have done without, uh, because <laughs> both Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman were both terrible, I think, in those three movies. They could have cast them way better. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... That's so really, yeah. The end of the movie with the fighting with the lightsaber duels is really the only cool part, in my opinion. There's a ton of just downtime. Uh, and then, last but not least, the worst Star Wars movie of the Skywalker, Skywalker saga is episode one The Phantom Menace. Just way too much politics. There's one cool scene between uh, when Obi Wan and Qui Gon uh, take on Darth Maul. And uh, Duel of the Fates background music is the best music in all nine movies. But that movie, I mean, look, it, it, there's too much Jar Jar Banks. There's too much politics. There's too much 
of just stuff that you wouldn't even want, like council meetings uh, where Mace Windu and Yoda don't want to train Anakin for some reason. Uh, the code forbids that a Jedi can take on more than one apprentice at a time. Uh, and apparently, they, and Sith can only have one apprentice at a time. They did a terrible job trying to convince us that Palpatine and Darth Sidious are not the same person. The movie was not very good at all. Um, and I was only about a year or two old when the movie came out, so I don't remember it uh, from the lens of, oh my gosh, this is like the latest Star Wars movie. But looking back on it, I mean, I have friends that love uh, The Phantom Menace, uh, a lot of friends, and I, I really don't see what's great about it, but um, I, I think it's the worst one. There's too much politics. It's too boring. Really, um, it would have been a lot. It would have been really cool to see some of the concepts that they introduced in the sequels uh, put in the original trilogy. Like, I think it would have been cool uh, to have, you know, how Kylo Ren and uh, Rey could like talk to each other through the Force, even on different planets. It would have been cool if we had had that dynamic between like Luke and Vader in the original trilogy. It, uh, the fight that Luke and Kylo had, where Kylo um, was going to you know, destroy the resistance, but he was distracted by Luke. Luke wasn't really there in the first place. I think they could have done the exact same thing in episode four with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan's secretly on Tatooine, um, and uh, he's allowing everybody to escape the Death Star, uh, but he, his face is, like, in a way, facing Darth Vader, and Darth Vader goes in to kill Obi-Wan and then realizes that Obi-Wan was just a hologram the entire time, and he loses. Uh, that would have been cool. The uh, Sith planet, I think it's called Exicle, that they in introduced in Episode Nine. That would have been cool to have that in all six of the movies and have that be where the Sith sort of go. Like, they have their own temple. They have their own order that they used to have. Uh, I would have actually liked to see Darth Vader and Darth Sidious have a more abusive relationship. And I know that sounds weird. You don't ever want anything to have a more abusive relationship. But I think it would have been done great for both character's development if Darth Sidious was looked at as much more cruel and uh, unforgiving and Darth Vader was looked on as much more abused and much more of a sympathetic, tragic-like character. Um, like maybe having Darth Sidious punish Darth Vader by force-lightninging him. That, that would have been, I think, uh, a nice, powerful touch. Uh, and then also, I think it would have been cool if Darth Vader had killed Darth Sidious the same way that Rey killed him. Uh, you know, just sort of counter the force lightning and then use his lightsaber to make Darth Sidious explode. That would have been cool. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Those are just my ideas, and I've talked way too long about Star Wars, but yeah, there you go. Let's talk football. Um, there's been reports throughout the last few weeks, because it's been a slow news cycle the last three or four weeks in the NFL ever since the Super Bowl, because now it's draft season. And the presumed number one overall pick is uh, LSU quarterback Joe Burrow, who won the Heisman and the national championship this past season. Uh, and all the talks have been Joe Burrow's going to get drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, but everybody's been talking about it. coming out of Joe Burrow's camp. We don't know if Joe Burrow wants to play for the Bengals. Joe Burrow shouldn't play for the Bengals. Blah, blah, blah. Joe Burrow doesn't want this, doesn't want that. Uh, so today was the first real media day of the Combine, and Joe Burrow's there, but he's not going to throw at the Combine He's just or work out. He's just there to do interviews. Um, and he came out with a statement today that sort of put to bed any rest that he was not going to play in Cincinnati. He said, I'm not going to not play. I'm a ball player. This is all quoted. I'm going to show up. You guys in the media kind of took that narrative and ran with it. There has never been anything like that from my end. I'll play for whoever drafts me. And when he was asked about the Bengals franchise, he said, I don't think there are any concerns, close quote. There were reports a few weeks ago also that came out that Joe Burrow believes that he has all the leverage when it comes to being drafted number one overall. First of all, there's nothing, I mean, you have zero leverage. There's only really one team that has a chance to get you, and that's the Bengals. Uh, so you have no leverage because... You can't trade yourself somewhere, and you can't negotiate with other teams to trade up to the number one spot. You've almost got no leverage because you sort of have to go to whoever picks you. And right now, it looks like the Bengals are the team that's going to pick you. The Re if you fall, I don't really think the Redskins are going to take you. I don't think uh, the Lions would take you. I think they're pretty set at quarterback. 
and they don't want a guy that would come in and threaten Stafford right now. Uh, he wouldn't be a top three pick if the Bengals don't pick him. He's really got no leverage here. Um, that's why I don't get that at all. Uh, you know, now about him not having any concerns about the Bengals organization. A lot of people have been calling out the Bengals as if they're some destitute franchise. First of all, yes, there there are problems in that organization. Their owner, uh, Mike Brown, has been very cheap. He hasn't paid a lot of guys. Uh, and when he does pay guys, they're usually the wrong guys. He didn't pay Andrew Whitworth. He didn't pay Mohamed Sanu. He didn't pay Marvin Jones. And those guys all went to be very good and productive players elsewhere. Uh, he kept... Uh, Marvin Lewis around for 15 years, even though he had never won a playoff game. Uh, what, what was it, 16 years? Yeah, 16 years. Marvin Lewis, 0-5 in the playoffs. That's that's pretty terrible. You know, after a while, you know, even Tom Landry got fired at one point because he wasn't doing very well uh, with the only franchise that he was ever successful with. Marvin Lewis has had success. He's won divisions in Cincinnati, but 0-5 in the playoffs is a pretty damning stat. And Mike Brown just continued to be buddies with Marvin Lewis and refused to fire him. And then also keeping Andy Dalton all those years. Andy Dalton has always been, in my opinion, a B-minus, C-plus type of quarterback, but they gave him an extension. They never really addressed the quarterback position until they're about to this year, but this is after letting Andy Dalton be the starter for nine seasons and you win zero playoff games in nine years. That's just setting the franchise back. Andy Dalton's okay. He's not bad. And he's a borderline Pro Bowl player. But you need to upgrade. You can't settle at quarterback. I was telling you about that last week. If you settle at quarterback, you're going to come up empty more often than not. And that's what the Bengals have found themselves into. And I think a lot of it has to be put on the shoulders of the owner. They are, one of, they are a small market team. They need star power. You can't keep Andy Dalton and Marvin Lewis in town all these years and be average and let Pro Bowl caliber guys like Andrew Whitworth, Mohamed Sanu, and Marvin Jones just walk out the building. Right? Look, I get it. Jo taking Joe Burrow, taking any first-round quarterback is always a risk, especially if you're a bad team. And there are concerns about Joe Burrow. He has the smallest measured hand size among first-round quarterbacks since 2008. I, that was 12 years ago. There, and there have been a plenty of quarterbacks that have come out of the first round in the last 12 years that haven't been any good with small hands. Joe Burrow has small hands, and he's going to a team in the Bengals who's no good. Now, I like Joe Burrow. I think he's got a ton of potential. He's got small hands, but you can work around that. Another concern for me about Burrow is he blossomed at the end of his career. He didn't really play well, and he wasn't even really... Last year, Joe Burrow's a third or fourth round draft pick, and he's flying under the radar. He has a chance to be the next Kirk Cousins or Russell Wilson fly-under-the-radar type of quarterback, or even the next Nick Foles. Now Joe Burrow has this Heisman season where he wins the championship, and... All of a sudden, he's being projected to go number one overall to the worst team in the NFL. There's a lot that goes into it. He blossomed at the end of his career. That always helps with draft position, but not necessarily in your actual playing career. In 2011, Christian Ponder and Blaine Gabbert were first-round quarterbacks. Remember those guys? Those guys, the year before, they blossomed at the end of their career. They had okay to pretty good college careers, and then in their last season, they really showed, hey, we exist. We're really good quarterbacks. And they went from being third or fourth round picks to being top 12 picks. And guess what? It didn't work out. They both pretty much bottomed out in the NFL, and now they're being used as examples of who you don't want to be like as a quarterback. But they but Christian Ponder blossomed late. Blaine Gabbert blossomed late. Jamarcus Russell did that. Jamarcus Russell wasn't the first overall pick if he was drafted a year earlier. When he got drafted, he was on top of the world. Another LSU quarterback. Didn't play dominant until the very end, and then that suddenly helped his draft stock. He went all the way to the Raiders, who stunk, and he only lasted three years in the league. 
I mean, look, it didn't help that he was he had a bad work ethic and he wasn't exactly uh, the most accurate passer in the world, and and he didn't keep in good shape. But Jamarcus Russell was doomed from the beginning because of the way his college career panned out. Same with Ryan Leaf. His best season was his last season. And then he goes out of the, into the NFL draft, joins one of the worst teams in the league, and he stinks. Jamarcus Russell, Ryan Leaf, Christian Ponder, Blaine Gabbert, those guys blossomed at the end of their careers, just like Joe Burrow did. That doesn't exactly help your playing career, blossoming at the end. A lot of people mistake that. They think, oh, he played well at the end. That means he is just now set for a dominant early NFL career. Not so fast. Playing really well at the end of your college career doesn't help your playing career at all. It only really helps your draft position. And that's what it's doing right now to Joe Burrow. Not to mention he played with arguably the most talented team in the nation at LSU this season. He had the most talented roster. He had the perfect coach for him and Ed Orgeron. And the perfect situation. I mean, they played in the national championship. It was basically a home game in New Orleans at the Superdome. Now, those are all negatives with Joe Burrow. I, I like him a lot, and I think if you put stuff around him, I think one day he can be a multiple-time Pro Bowl quarterback who can win you playoff games, potentially a championship. I, and I've been adamant in saying this since the beginning. I think I see Aaron Rodgers when I, when I watch Joe Burrow. Now, that's just me. I, I see a lot of Aaron Rodgers because I see the unreal accuracy while on the run. I see the mobility. I see the vision down the field, the aggressiveness, the unbelievable precision, the playmaking knack that he has. I think Joe Burrow has a lot of Aaron Rodgers in him. That's sort of my ceiling for Joe Burrow. If he pans out the way I think, he can become Aaron Rodgers which is great. Super Bowl champion, a couple of MVPs. Very, very good player. Now, my floor for Joe Burrow, I would say would have to be in the range of either Blaine Gabbert or Sam Bradford. Those guys sort of had lead feet, except for Blaine Gabbert. And once he left Jacksonville, he sort of became much more of a mobile quarterback. But, you know, struggled behind offense, struggled in the face of pressure, uh, which forced them to be way too conservative uh, and become injury-prone, um, and their accuracy is sort of touch-and-go. I think, and, and look, those guys didn't exactly pan out. You know, they're not, they, they become journeyman backup quarterbacks. I think that's the ceiling, the, uh, the floor for Joe Burrow. The ceiling is he's a Super Bowl-winning MVP quarterback like Aaron Rodgers. I think his floor is something of that of Sam Bradford. Um, that's sort of where I'm at. I, I think he, I also see a lot of Kirk Cousins, Philip Rivers, borderline Tony Romo in Joe Burrow, where I just see the, the downfield poise and the, the accuracy down the field, but everything's going to change when he goes to the Bengals, and all of a sudden he's playing with the worst O-line in the league. And a lot of people I'm seeing are talking about how this really needs to work out for Joe Burrow early. Okay, Joe Burrow needs to make the playoffs within the first year. He needs, after one or two years, we have to look at Joe Burrow and think, he's a franchise quarterback. You see it around the league. People wondering the things about Baker Mayfield, about Sam Darnold. Some are even worrying about that with Kyler Murray. Here's the problem with NFL fans these days. They have become... NFL fans have become far too impatient. And not just the fans, really. Teams. The NFL in general has become impatient. They want results now. There's never, there's no process anymore like there used to be. Peyton Manning, as a rookie, threw 28 interceptions. That was a rookie record, and no rookie has ever come close to throwing 28 interceptions ever again. You don't think, and the Colts went 3 and 13 for the second straight year. You don't think after one year the Colts would have looked at Peyton Manning and thought, you know what, maybe this guy's not going to work out. Okay, because we just went 3 and 13, and he shattered the rookie record for interceptions and led the entire NFL. Peyton Manning didn't win a playoff game until his sixth season in the NFL. His first five seasons, zero playoff wins. A lot of interceptions, more so than Jameis Winston has in his first five years. 
But the Colts were in an era, Peyton Manning played in an era early on that was more patient. They nurtured Peyton Manning, said, it's going to be a process. We're going to lock you up long term. We're going to get you guys that can help you win. And then we're going to win a championship one day. Cam Newton didn't make the playoffs until year three. And why is that? Because when Cam Newton was drafted, he joined a team that the year before was 2-14 and 14 and had a bottom seven defense and no offensive line. Peyton Manning, when he joined the Colts, had a bottom five defense. The Panthers stunk during Cam Newton's rookie year. He still made a Pro Bowl. In his first two years, they missed the playoffs in each of his first two seasons in the league. And a lot of people are saying, is Cam Newton really all that? Jared Goff didn't make the playoffs until his second year, didn't win a playoff game until year three because he joined a team that had no weapons and had a terrible coaching staff, and Jared Goff struggled mightily his rookie year, and after that year, a lot of people were looking at Jared Goff and thinking, this guy's never going to pan out. Jameis Winston has played five years and has never made the playoffs. He joined a 2-14 and team that had no defense and no offensive line, and gave him nothing but weapons. They have they really haven't had any semblance of a running game during Jameis's career, and he's really been thrust into a lot more than most quarterbacks are required for. He has to throw for 450 yards every week. Alex Smith didn't make the playoffs until year seven. Because he, he was stuck on a team that had no weapons, a lot of injury, and had several bad coaching staffs, and 49ers fans. We're ready to throw in the towel on Alex Smith, and eventually they did. But look what happened. Peyton Manning ends up being arguably the best regular season quarterback of all time because the process did wonders for him. Cam Newton ended up making it to a Super Bowl and being an MVP player, because the and that was not until year five that he became MVP and went to a Super Bowl because the Panthers trusted the process. Jared Goff is a two-time Pro Bowler and took the Rams to the Super Bowl last year because why? The Rams trusted the process. They built around him. Jameis Winston, he just threw for 5,100 yards and 33 touchdowns. He would never have done that his rookie year or his second year in the league. But the process, now you see how good Jameis Winston can be, even if he is a turnover mess. He can put up big numbers. Look at Alex Smith. He, before he got that devastating injury, he was making the playoffs every year, doing nothing but winning. When you put him with good coaching staffs like Jim Harbaugh and Andy Reid, he was ex he was excellent. He's a three-time Pro Bowler after he leaves San Francisco. But they trusted the process. He trusted the process. He knows, you know what, I'm not going to come out of the gate being the best quarterback. There are exceptions. Andrew Luck, Russell Wilson coming right out of the gate and making Pro Bowls and winning Super Bowls and, and making it deep into the playoffs. They came right out of the gate doing that. There are exceptions, but there aren't a lot. There are, You're probably looking for reasons why some quarterbacks don't succeed. Sam Bradford always had bad offensive lines, never had weapons, and never made the playoffs, and always got hurt as a result. That's why Sam Bradford was never successful, because the Rams refused to build around him. And everyone's blaming the Rams for Sam Bradford being terrible. Everyone's blaming Sam Bradford for being terrible, not the Rams. When he was on the Eagles. Oh, Sam Bradford stinks. Well, the Eagles had Chip Kelly, who was a failed NFL head coach. They way overpaid for DeMarco Murray. And you expect Sam Bradford to be a MVP quarterback, a Pro Bowl quarterback? He goes to the Vikings. They have no offensive imagination. And they really have no running game. And they have developing weapons, but they're not weapons yet. And everyone's trashing Sam Bradford, even though he set a single-season completion percentage record. The one time you give Sam Bradford any semblance of weapons, he has by far his best season. Because Sam Bradford was always accurate, and he always had a knack for making accurate plays down the field. But they never gave him an offensive line. He never had weapons in St. Louis. And as a result of never having an offensive line, he always got hurt. But it's Sam Bradford's fault. That's why people need to stop labeling Baker Mayfield a bust. He'll be fine. Oh, but he got Odell Beckham and, and Jarvis Landry and, and David Njoku. Yes. And, and Nick Chubb and, and Kareem Hunt. Oh my gosh, he's got all of these weapons. 
but you, you can't win on just weapons. Andrew Luck had only weapons. He had stud receivers like T.Y. Hilton and Reggie Wayne. And he could never make it to a Super Bowl despite him being Andrew freaking Luck. Because guess what? You need an offensive line. You need a defense. You need a running game. You need coaching. Andrew Luck had no offensive line help. He had no defense. He had no running game. He had poor coaching. And as a result, he never got to play in a Super Bowl because all of those things can certainly hold you back. Baker Mayfield has had terrible head coaches in his two years in the NFL. He's had three. Hugh Jackson, Greg Williams, and Freddie Kitchens. All of them can't coach to be head coaches. Baker Mayfield joined a team that was 0-16 when he got there. And, they, and people are expecting him to make deep playoff runs because they're impatient. Odell and Jarvis can't carry you to the playoffs by themselves. You need an offensive line. You need guys that can play defense. Miles Garrett was suspended half of the season. They had no coach. Their offensive line was bottom five in the NFL. Guy's running for his life. Trust me, Matthew Stafford, everyone looks at Matthew Stafford and thinks, that's a pretty good quarterback. No one was thinking that early on because he went and joined an 0-16 team and he went 2-14 his rookie year and threw 13 touchdowns to 20 interceptions, and everyone was labeling Stafford a bust after just one season. Do you not realize that these guys join teams that are already horrible? The Browns stunk when Baker Mayfield showed up, and they still stink because their ownership can't find the right coach, and they can't develop an offensive line or a defense to save their life, and all they've gotten is running backs and wide receivers and they have a pretty decent tight end, but not a great tight end that you can depend on every week. And they think that's enough for Baker Mayfield. Stop labeling him a bust. He's got plenty of time. Year three might be the year. Stop labeling Sam Darnold a bust because he might pan out. He'll be fine. No rookie quarterbacks ever thrown more touchdowns than Baker Mayfield did in 2018. You can't just build up a young quarterback by just giving him weapons. Andrew Luck never had a running game, a defense, or an offensive line until literally the last year of his career. And that, and by then, he had already lost his love for the game. The NFL's become way too impatient. Sorry. Let's transition to this. This will be our last main topic. There's been some heat picking up the last few days about the possibility of Tom Brady signing with the Tennessee Titans. Uh, Tom Brady still has an outside chance of leaving the Patriots, the only team he's ever known for 20 years. And the Titans would make a lot of sense. His head coach in Tennessee would be Mike Vrabel, who is Tom's former teammate in New England. They won three Super Bowls with each other. So a reunion might be the best thing for it. Here's why I think, and a lot of people are talking about Tom Brady to the Titans. I think it would be a terrible move for the Titans organization, who is clearly in win-now mode after making it a game away from the Super Bowl this year. But here's why... Tom Brady would not propel them past where they got last year and why Tom Brady would actually make them worse. Next year, I've already said it, Tom Brady will be a 43-year-old quarterback. He's barely younger than the head coach. You can't pay Tom Brady what he wants on a two- or three-year contract and pay guys like Derrick Henry and Jack Conklin, the right tackle. Both of which, if I, I think if Henry and Conklin both leave, Life would be miserable for Tom Brady in Tennessee. There goes his running game. There goes his right tackle. Both would be so important for Brady. They could afford both of those players if they signed, if they re-signed Ryan Tannehill. And guess what? Would Tom Brady really be an upgrade on Ryan Tannehill? I mean, if you asked six or seven years ago, well, who would you rather have, Tom Brady or Ryan Tannehill? Duh, you'd rather have Tom Brady. But guess what? One of them is 30, and one of them's 43. One of them just led the league in yards per attempt and passer rating and went to the AFC Championship game, and the other just got bounced by the other in the wild card game at home. Showed no mobility. Ryan Tannehill was a pro bowler. Led the league in yards per attempt, passer rating, threw 22 touchdowns to only six picks in his first season for a, for, for a team that's not as good as New England, by the way. 
And he did it with an unproven coaching staff and some pretty unproven receivers. We didn't know about Corey Davis or A.J. Brown coming into this season. We didn't know about Jonu Smith, the tight end, when we came into this season. All we really knew about on this offense was Derrick Henry. Ryan Tannehill joined a 2-4 team, and that team went 7-3 once Tannehill came in there. He breathed life after Marcus Mariota got benched. How about Tom Brady, who was not a Pro Bowler this year, who was tied for the third lowest yards per attempt this season. The only people lower were Mitchell Trubisky and Mason Rudolph. He had the sixth lowest touchdown percentage in the NFL. He had one total game-winning drive in 16 games. Ryan Tannehill had three in six less games. He played with a generational defense and a tremendous coaching staff. The best coaching staff Tom Brady had. And guess what? He also had unproven receivers. Yeah, we didn't know about Nikhil Harry. Although we do know about Julian Edelman. He's a Super Bowl MVP. We didn't know about Jacoby Myers or Nikhil Harry. Yeah, okay, I get it. Ryan Tannehill had unproven receivers too. And guess what? He led the league in passer rating with unproven receivers, and he went to an AFC championship with them. What did Tom Brady do? He was bottom five, I mean, bottom six in yards per attempt and touchdown percentage, despite having a su clearly superior coaching staff and defense, and got bounced in the first round by Ryan Tannehill. People call Brady a clutch postseason performer, though. His last three playoff games. He's thrown one touchdown pass against four interceptions, and it should have been five if it weren't for D. Ford lining up offsides in last year's AFC Championship game. And in their last two playoff games, Tom Brady has led his offense to a grand total of 26 points in the last two games. If you don't, if you can't do math, that's 13 points a game, which is not very good, and that's not enough to win games. But he won a Super Bowl twice by only leading his offense to 13 points. He's being protected by Bill Belichick at this stage of his career. He's clearly washed. He's clearly washed. But Bill Belichick's defenses are allowing him to still go 11-5, 12-4. And they're giving Tom Brady just enough short to intermediate help in the passing game where he doesn't look completely washed. That's a tough pill to swallow. But it's the facts. Ryan Tannehill threw the ball vertically a ton for the Titans this season. They have a vertical passing attack. A lot of deep threats. Tom Brady can't throw it down the field anymore accurately. I'm sorry. I think the Titans would, be, would make a ginormous mistake if they abandoned what's working, which is Ryan Tannehill, and go after an unexciting and old quarterback like Tom Brady, who, if we all can admit, is simply just name value at this stage of his career. All right, that's my Tom Brady rant for the day. Uh, some big games tonight uh, across sports. The big NBA game is at 10 o'clock. Lakers hosting the New Orleans Pelicans. It's LeBron versus Zion. It's going to be quite the matchup. Lakers favored by 7.5 in the first ever meeting between LeBron and Zion. Uh, the 12 and 45 Warriors at 10:30 will host the 23 and 33 Kings, Sacramento Kings. The Kings have beaten the Clippers twice this season. Warriors striving for the number one overall pick, but on March 1st against Washington, uh, longtime icon of the franchise Steph Curry is expected to make his uh, reappearance in the lineup. Uh, the Bucks turn around and play again today. They play against the. Toronto Raptors, they pulled off a big 137-134 overtime win over the Wizards last night to go to 49-8 on the season. They remain the number one seed in the East, facing off with, uh, currently, if the season ended today, the second-seeded Raptors. Might be a Eastern Conference Finals preview, Bucks and Raptors. Those among some of the NBA matchups tonight. Uh, in the top AP top 25 of men's basketball, men's college basketball tonight, uh, Ole Miss uh, visiting 15th ranked Auburn tonight, 4th ranked Dayton visiting unranked George Mason, uh, 18th ranked Iowa visiting 24th ranked Michigan State, 
and eighth-ranked Kentucky visiting unranked Texas A&M, and seventh-ranked Duke visiting unranked Wake Forest. All those games at 7 o'clock. 8 o'clock, Kansas State unranked will visit number two-seeded Baylor. And at 9 o'clock, 22nd-ranked Texas Tech visiting unranked Oklahoma. And at 11 o'clock, unranked Colorado State visiting fifth-ranked San Diego State. In the NHL, it's 7 o'clock, Winnipeg visiting the Washington Capitals at Capital One Arena. Uh, Calgary Flames visit the current President's Trophy favorite, Boston Bruins. Dallas Stars visiting the Carolina Hurricanes. Vancouver Canucks visiting the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, the New York Rangers visit the New York Islanders. Not much of a visit there. Uh, the San Jose Sharks visit the Philadelphia Flyers. And the Toronto Maple Leafs visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. Those are all 7 o'clock. 7.30, puck drop. New Jersey Devils visiting the Detroit Red Wings. 8 o'clock, Chicago Blackhawks visit the St. Louis Blues, the reigning champion Blues, uh, along with the Ottawa Senators visit the Nashville Predators, and the Columbus Blue Jackets visit the Minnesota Wild. 9 o'clock, Florida Panthers visit the Phoenix Coyotes, and at 10 o'clock, the Edmonton Oilers visit the Anaheim Ducks. One omission yesterday, Kobe Bryant uh, had his memorial service for himself and his daughter, Gianna, uh, at the Staples Center yesterday. Great speeches from guys like Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe's widow, Vanessa Bryant. Uh, very beautiful service. I watched a little bit of it. I didn't watch a lot. It was hosted by talk show host Jimmy Kimmel, um, broadcast everywhere. Uh, Vanessa Bryant uh, took a lot of courage to get up there and give a eulogy about her husband and her daughter, who have both died. I can't even imagine what that's like. Um, but that's the one omission. Uh, tomorrow, we're uh, spicing it up a little bit for tomorrow's show. We're going to be doing a mailbag episode. Um, so I will be answering a lot of your questions that you've asked me on Instagram tomorrow. And um, if you would like to be mentioned by name, just let me know and ask a question. And I will be sure to answer it to the best of my abilities tomorrow. Um, thank you all for watching. And uh, thank you all for supporting me since I've started this podcast last Thursday. I uh, hope to continue doing this for many, many, uh, many years to come. Uh, I'm your host, Jacob Valier. You have been listening to The Jadava Show.